Let's remain standing for a word of prayer. Spirit of God, breathe on your church. Pour out your presence. Speak through your word. We pray in every nation Christ be known, our hope and our salvation, Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Please do take your seats. And uh, if you didn't manage to pick up a handout on your way in, just put your hand up now and one of the stewards will, uh, will come to you and... Uh, and pass you a handout. There's, there's, there's some more things on there than I'm referring to specifically uh, in the sermon that might just be useful for you, and that will guide you through. Uh, so do leave your hand up if you need if you need a handout, and that will be helpful to you, I trust. Are we about there? Great. At the heart of the universe is a love story. It's the story of God's love for his people expressed in Christ's sacrificial and sufficient love for his bride, the church. And in light of this greater love, God gives us all that we need to navigate our human relationships in this beautiful yet broken world. And we've already seen in this series, and there's a a few reminders of the past couple of sermons, we've seen already that we need to understand both the beginning and the end of the story in order to understand our part in the middle of the story, to navigate the complexities, the messes of ordinary life today. And this morning, we're coming to another very significant part of the story It's a plot twist. So please turn back to Genesis chapter 3, page 5 in the church Bibles, and you'll need those words in front of you. Genesis chapter 3, page 5. You might remember in our last one in this series a couple of weeks ago, we left Genesis chapter 2 with man and woman, created, commissioned, united to one another in marriage as one flesh, And then you'll see the end of chapter two, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was intimacy and innocence. There was no shame, no fear. And yet as we open chapter three, we encounter the presence of a dark force In verse 1, shame is about to enter the story that we live in. The atmosphere shifts from delight and shalom to doubt and skepticism. Verse 1, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In some children's Bibles, he's described as the sneaky snake. 
a sneaky snake. And that echoes the way that a snake would become an anti-God symbol in ancient Israel. And later in the scriptures, this snake is identified with Satan, the devil, the accuser, the adversary, the tempter. And what tactics does he use? Well, he's very shrewd, subtle suggestions. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He inquires, suggests, confuses. He brings in some skepticism. He's the first to deconstruct faith in God. He clouds the mind by subtly twisting what God did say. He introduces discontent. He moves the conversation to talking about God rather than to God or with God. And he's beginning to paint a picture of God as the cosmic party pooper. It's the same age-old tactic that is still used and that still works today. For example, in relation to sex, as Andrea Trevena writes, you live in a culture in which sex is everywhere. And sex seems to equal fulfillment. That's the whisper your heart hears every day. And if you are a single, celibate woman or man, the bait is you're not having sex. You're missing out on what you most need. That's just one example of subtle suggestions. You're missing out. God just wants to limit you. He wants to ruin your flourishing. But what had God actually said back in the Garden of Eden? If you look at verses 16, 17 of chapter 2, they were free to eat from any tree in the garden with one exception. The freedom to restriction ratio was actually lots and lots to just one. And the atmosphere was of delight, abundance, generosity, all lovingly boundaried. That's not what the, that, is, that is what the reply to Satan should have been. But no, the reply, verses 2 and 3 from the woman, seems to, seems to add an additional restriction of not touching it, which we didn't hear from God before. And then spotting the opening, Satan presses home his advantage. Look at verse 4. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see how firstly he questions the consequences of moving beyond the boundaries God has set? You will not certainly die. This is the first recorded lie in the Bible. And it's about God. A lie that continued through the centuries and is being told and is being believed still today that there are no consequences for disobeying God. The implication is that God's restrictions are cruel and the consequences are not real. And therefore, boundaries are bulldozed, fences are flattened. And in the choice that our first parents made, we see the choice that every human being makes. As Peter Lewis said, we live in an age when when people increasingly want to choose their own morality, write their own commandments, make their own rules of, uh, of, idea, of right and wrong. Personal choice is the great good. Tolerance of other ideas is the only absolute. Now, Peter said this probably 10, maybe 15 years ago now. 
I think we'd probably say compelled to celebrate rather than merely tolerate other ideas now. And then he goes on. This, this is on the handout. We are busy relabeling the trees of the garden, redefining right and wrong with disastrous results. The prophet Isaiah once cried out, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, is the ultimate impudence against God's way, calling evil good and good evil. And it happens when sin is justified and virtue despised. It's the final confusion. It's a wise warning that reminds us that before you remove a fence or a boundary, it's as well to ask and to find out why it was put there in the first place. So why are God's boundaries put there in the first place? I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones expresses it. She says God's rules, God's boundaries are his gift to us to help us be who we really are. And not only does Satan question the consequences, he he also offers up a very seductive, a very appealing alternative version of the story in which we live. And in his version, the story that he offers up, it's a story where God is not a good, loving creator, but a threatened deity. Satan paints a picture of God as a harsh, repressive, spiteful, mean, jealous, distant deity. And the alternative presented to humanity is that that your story doesn't have to begin with God, but with you. You can define your reality. You can define your identity. You can be the center, the beginning, and the end of your story. And verses 6 and 7 give us a fateful statement about that first act of sin that has reverberated down through every human life since. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What a reversal of expectations resulted. They didn't become like God. They became less than themselves. They expected to be confident, mature, wise, but they were left guilty, vulnerable, insecure. Contrast the end of chapter two where they felt no shame with verse 7 of chapter 3, and their desperate attempts to cover themselves. Stepping beyond God's boundaries never adds to our humanity. It only ever diminishes our humanity. And it leaves us disillusioned. The fire festival 
was a luxury music festival taking place over two weekends in April and May 2017. And its location was to be a remote and exclusive island in the Bahamas. And the promotional film for Fire Festival oozes appeal and attraction of, of all kinds. Some of the biggest social media influencers promoted the, the festival with, with great fanfare. And those who paid top prices, and we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars, those who paid top prices for the best tickets were promised flights with a real VIP experience, luxury villas to stay on in the island, and top music performances, performance performers and a star-studded lineup. And they were promised gourmet meals cooked by celebrity chefs. 5,000 tickets were sold. And the first weekend arrived. Excited ticket holders gathered in the airport in Miami. Anticipation, excitement. But it was at this point that they had a foretaste of the disillusionment that was to come. The real VIP flight experience was actually just hours in airport queues. And on arrival at the island, their luggage was reportedly just chucked out in the dark. Finally getting to the festival site, they discovered that the luxury villas were little more than disaster relief tents, with mattresses inside that had already been soaked by rainfall. The top bands... Well, they pulled out, leaving local musicians to perform. And the gourmet meals were actually cold cheese, processed cheese sandwiches served on a polystyrene tray. And in the early hours of the first day, the festival was postponed and efforts to get disillusioned ticket holders back to the mainland were underway. And unsurprisingly, lawsuits followed. Have you, have you been sold our culture's story of sexuality, identity, marriage that was appealing? that is seductive, that is attractive, that oozes appeal, that promised so much that you bought into. But are you here this morning even just beginning to have a sense of disillusionment with that story? You were promised a gourmet meal. But you're left looking at cold cheese sandwiches on a polystyrene tray. And you're disillusioned. Is that a picture of your experience? If it is, Will you at least give a hearing to the Bible story of a greater love? A story that doesn't diminish you, 
but a story that dignifies our humanity. Back in Genesis 3, not only were the man and woman scrabbling around to try and cover themselves up, they were, they were trying to find a place to hide from God. It's dramatically portrayed in verse 8. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I think we get some of the sense of the background to this being that it was a regular occurrence that the creator spent quality time with them at the end of each working day, walking, talking, enjoying, fellowshipping, delighting in, where once they ran to him, now they hide from him. Verse 10, I answered, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Human beings have been hiding from God ever since. This is true in all areas of life. We're just focusing on sex and sexuality in this series. Have a look at the quote on the handout from Colin Crichton with me towards the bottom of the first page. Ever since Genesis, humanity has been hiding. I've been hiding. So have you. The feeling of shame, the impulse to hide. They are ancient echoes running through our soul, habits woven into our spiritual DNA. We hide from God. We hide from others and we hide from ourselves. Scared to be exposed, afraid to be seen for who we are, terrified that we are not enough. Sin is the fuel of our shame. It tells us that we should be enough by ourselves. It speaks the same lies as that serpent of old, saying that we should be like God, we, we should be God. Then it condemns us when we are not. In our sexuality and in our spirituality, we are hiding. The fear of being seen, the shame of being known. Sexually, we give ourselves to lovers who are no lovers at all, but users. Spiritually, we give ourselves to gods that are not gods at all, but idols. We fear to be embraced by a real lover, by the real lover. Because we fear being, see, being seen for who we are, the shame of being known. So we hide. We hide alone. We use others. We use lovers. We use idols to get a taste of what it is to be precious, to get a taste of what it is to be safe in another's arms. God comes to them in judgment and mercy, looking for them and asking, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And they emerge only with evasions and excuses. The man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, the book is passed, blame is shifted, and ultimately God is blamed. Innocence and intimacy replaced by shame and blame, delight, tenderness replaced by fear. The creation order has been ruptured. 
man and woman, had been given the creation mandate to rule over the animals. But a fatal role reversal has occurred as they were deceived by the snake. Rather than ruling over creation, the human beings were ruled by the animals, by creation. There was a rupturing of the created order. And that unleashed many other reorderings or misorderings throughout creation, as we'll see. And notice the word that is used there, deceived. The word deceived is a consistent scriptural description of how we as human beings are affected by sin and fall into temptation. We're deceived. We are misled. And let me say that that, that is why false teaching in churches is so dangerous. Because it deceives. I don't use that word lightly, but false teaching deceives. It misleads. And lots of people, lots of Christians and churches tragically are being misled being deceived about sexuality, identity, and marriage in a whole host of ways. And we have to realize that we're not neutral, objective, clear-minded people who, well, we simply need to hear the best arguments about these things and make our independent adjudication on them. That's not the situation we're in. And neither can we just say, well, well, this is the way that God made me. Because that doesn't take into account the impact of Genesis 3. Because the effects of Genesis 3 are so profound that our hearts, our minds, our bodies are all distorted by sin. All of us, every part of us, including our desires, So we mustn't place our ultimate trust in our desires or even in ourselves. We need need God's God's revelation, a word from outside of us. And we need the Spirit's work in us. That's why I prayed as I did at the start of this sermon. So that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the Spirit's power. The creation order is ruptured. And we see ruptured spiritual relationships and ruptured human relationships. So verses 14 and 15, we've already seen that humanity went into hiding, indicating the rupture of their relationship with the Lord God. And then we read in verses 14 and 15 a pronouncement that, that, that uses the strong metaphorical language of the ancient Near East. It uses what in, in, in that society would have been very familiar metaphors for shame and defeat. The references aren't to real snakes which don't eat dust and didn't have legs. The reference is to a real Satan and to the forces of evil, verse 40. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's conflict in the spiritual realm. 
conflict which proceeds into attacks on humanity, often evidenced by humans attacking other humans. History is marked with enmity between Satan and humanity. There's no longer spiritual peace for humans. And in addition, our human relationships have been ruptured. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This this rebellion against God results in conflict, in interpersonal relationships, even in their closest form. And scholars tell us that that first part of verse 16 has the it has a wider application than just giving birth. It has the sense of, I will make your anxiety about children very severe. I will make your anxiety about children very severe. And the relationship between man and wife is ruptured. To love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. Gone is that unashamed united love story between men and women. Now there is conflict, a power struggle. For example, as Daniel Block writes, and because of the ongoing sins of men, women are all too often treated as subjects rather than co-regents in the exercise of dominion over the earth. Lord, have mercy. The relationship between males and females more widely is ruptured. Are you beginning to see how Genesis 3 gives us the origins of rivalry and trouble in marriage? And in the workplace, in friendships, in families, in communities. And it also gives us the origins of how our sexuality, our capacity for sexual expression has been affected. All of us. The sexuality of each one of us has been damaged by our inherited fallenness in different ways, in different measures. So it's why we might experience sexual attraction to someone other than our spouse or sexual desires for multiple partners or same-sex attraction or confusion about our bodies and our gender. This part of the story, Genesis 3, profoundly affects us as shame enters the story in which we live. And in the rest of the chapter, this isn't our focus today, but the rest of the chapter we see ruptured environmental relationships, the rupture of life itself. And as we read the tragic closing verses of the chapter, we read that life would be outside of the garden, exiled from Eden, distance from delight, distance from God himself. So tell me, where are you this morning? Are you ashamed? Trying to cover up? 
Are you hiding? Are you painfully aware of distance from God? Are you acutely aware of your sexual shame, whatever that looks like for you, and the impact of Genesis 3? Is there any hope for those who are hiding? Is there hope for you? Hope for me? Hope for humanity? Well, wherever you feel you are, your story need not end there. The story of greater love does not end there. The story of greater love does not end at Genesis chapter 3. And actually, even Genesis chapter 3 doesn't end without hope. As Ailey was reading it earlier, did you begin even to notice some of the, the hints of hope in this chapter? The first hint of hope is that God comes looking for us. He sees the man and woman hiding and he calls to them. He sees us hiding and pursues us. Jackie Hill Perry tells her story in a very moving way. It's a book that's on the bookstore. And at one point she writes this. Who gave mercy my address? Who gave mercy my address? Or told it how to get to my room? Didn't it know a sinner lived in it? On the way down the hall, shouldn't the smell of idols kept its feet from moving any closer? Then I remembered the one verse of the Bible that I knew by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Mercy has your address. The Lord knows your story. He knows what your heart longs for and where that has taken you. He knows the hurts and the disappointments. He knows your past and your present. The Lord sees you desperately trying to cover up. And it's safe to be found by the Lord, even in our shame. The Lord sees us hiding and he pursues us. He sees our fear. He holds us close. He pays our debts and redeems us. He sees our shame. And he covers it. That's the second hint of hope. God made garments of skin for them. And cover them. Did you see that in verse 21? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. A note of mercy, protection, of provision. As Ed Shaw writes, too many of us feel that our sexuality is too damaged to repair. We desperately wish that our sexual history could be deleted as swiftly as our internet history seems to be. But that doesn't seem possible. Except that with Jesus, it is. 
and in the words of Peter Lewis, there are many things in our lives that are inexcusable. There is nothing that is unforgivable. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 reads, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I was in London for a meeting a few years ago. It was near, near Westminster. And a politician whom I recognized walked past me. And he'd been involved in some form of sexual scandal and he'd been in the news the previous year. And do you know the first thing that I thought of as he walked past me? It wasn't his post in government, that he had a very high post that, that he held at the time. It wasn't even his name. It was what he had done. That was the first thing that I saw when I saw him as he walked past. His sin and his shame. It might as well have been written all over his clothes. He might as well have walked past me wearing a t-shirt like this. And maybe you are here this morning. And how I viewed that politician is just how you are viewing yourself. Not even a name. Just a sexual past of shame. And not only is that how you view yourself, but that is how you feel God views you too. Because you feel as though you are always wearing clothes like this. Covered with the sexual shame in your life. And you do your best to hide it, to cover it up, but you know it's there. And God knows it's there. But the passage that's on the screen doesn't end there. Verse 14, it continues, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Lord calls us to bring our sin and our shame and to place them 
at the foot of the cross. Where God the Father gave his son, Jesus Christ. He calls us to place our sexual shame at his feet. And not only that, but to receive the life of Christ in return. We get to swap sexual histories with Jesus so that he wears our lusts, our fantasies, our porn addiction, our sex outside marriage, our selfish sex within marriage. Only you will truly know what he bears for you. And a great exchange takes place so that we get Jesus Christ's sexual purity, his self-sacrificial sexual integrity, such that a great exchange takes place, such that when God looks at you now, he sees not that, but this. And he calls you by name. He looks on us and sees the life of Christ and his perfection. He looks on us and sees him who did not sin. So come to Christ for forgiveness. Come to Christ who covers our sexual shame. And the third hint of hope is God's promise to defeat the devil. Devil. Did you see it in verse 15? An offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And all of these hints of hope point us to Jesus Christ and to his victory. Jesus Christ who at the cross and resurrection defeats the devil. Who silences the accuser, who covers our shame, who adopts us into God's family, who includes us, even me, even you. We're included in the story of greater love. So hear his invitation today to stop hiding, to come in confession, to turn away from stories that leave us disillusioned with plastic ingredients on polystyrene trays. And come instead and eat the bread and drink the wine. You, me, we're invited by the Lord to eat and drink at his table. Mercy has your address. Come and feast with our Lord.